everybody, and welcome to the Weekend Interview Show. I'm your host, Philip Drew, Administrator. Very special guest today, Hans Hermann Hopp. He is a professor of economics at UNLV, a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute, the editor of the Journal of Libertarian Studies, and author of the books, A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism, The Economics and Ethics of Private Property, Democracy, The God That Failed. And Mr. Hopp is also the editor of the new book, The Myth of National Defense. Welcome to the show, sir. Uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure. I'd like to start uh, with the end there, the myth of national defense. You know, I'm a pretty, uh, I suppose, radical, libertarian kind of guy. And a lot of times um, when arguing with statists, I have to say, well, you know, there are a couple of basic reasons for government to exist, to protect the borders from foreign enemies and to provide fair trials for the defense or, or for, you know, criminals and that kind of thing. But other than that, they need to leave us alone. And now what, what you're saying in this book, The Myth of National Defense, is that actually their, their basic bottom line excuse for existing is invalid. Is that right? That's right. That's the serious. We... Um generally accept uh, the position, or at least many people accept the position in the meantime, that there is practically nothing that the free market cannot do better than uh, than the government, but typically with one big exception, and that is uh, they claim national defense would be the thing where government is absolutely necessary, and that cannot possibly um, be done by by private by private alternatives and this book um, uh, which I for which I served as the editor and wrote also a chapter and introduction to it but uh, contributions are made from various people this book tries to uh, tries to show that one uh, should have serious doubts about the correctness of that thesis too that it, there might be possibilities uh, to protect oneself uh, from foreign aggression or also from internal crime more successfully than it can can be done by governments. Okay, and in fact, while we're at it, we ought to go ahead and uh, define for the audience state as you mean it. Uh, I've read in, in your works in the last few weeks here um, that you define the state as a monopoly on ultimate decision-making and the power to tax. Right. Can you expand on that a little bit? Explain to people what you mean by that? Um, I mean by that, that the following, that in any, in any type of serious uh, conflict that occurs in, in a given territory, there is one institution that claims uh, we are the ultimate judge to determine who is who is right and who is wrong in this uh, in this conflict. Uh, and this institution then also has the right uh, to impose unilaterally, without the consent of others, how much it will cost uh, to get this service from, from the state delivered to be the ultimate judge in cases of conflict. Um, and 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 this uh, this monopoly this monopoly position in a way explains um, a fundamental flaw in in the construction of uh, of government. Uh, I mean, if 
if you are the ultimate judge in all cases of conflicts, uh, then you are also the ultimate judge in cases of conflicts that you yourself might have caused or provoked. Um, and naturally, you will then decide these uh, conflicts in in your own favor. You will be more provocative and more uh, uh, involved in creating uh, a conflict than uh, than people who are not who are not the ultimate uh, the ultimate judge. And of course, if you have the monopoly of taxing, you cannot have competition in the area of taxing, obviously, because if you would have that, then there would be nothing left to tax and everybody could steal from everybody else, so to speak. But if you have the monopoly of taxing as, as governments do it, then your incentive is, so to speak, to get as much as you can get in terms of tax income and actually work as little for those things that you are supposed to work as you can possibly get away with. Um, that follows simply from, from the incentive structure uh, that is created with the existence of a state. So many phenomena that we observe um, become perfectly, uh, perfectly understandable once we recognize this, that, that state employees by and large uh, are uh, less busy, uh, less work-oriented, um, less competent um, because they know that their salaries are paid out of uh, out of taxes and they do not have to satisfy consumers. Well, earlier at the beginning of that answer, you talked about as the ultimate decision makers. Uh, I, I'd like to get back to the employee, uh, government employees do as little work as possible for the money because they're getting paid with tax money. We can come back to that, but you mentioned when they're the ultimate arbiter of deciding who's right and wrong, then that also means in cases involving themselves and how they'll always uh, decide in their own favor. And I right. was wondering, is that why you don't seem to differentiate in your writings between democracies and limited republics at all? I mean, I guess to you, a limited no, I republic think just this, becomes a democracy immediately, right? I think this, this characteristic uh, all states share, whether it is a democracy or a republic or a monarchy, all of all of the states uh, have this characteristic to be the to claim that they are the ultimate judge and that they have taxing that they have taxing power. If they would not claim that, then then we would deal with some sort of clubs. Um, so this all states have in common. That doesn't mean that uh, that. That it is not useful to make distinctions between different types of states. Different types of states operate in different ways, but nonetheless, this general fundamental flaw they all have in common. Um, so, the, so they will also be bad when it comes to uh, protecting people. Uh, that is doing what they are supposed to, uh, what they are supposed to do. And if you just look at look at the world, uh, you find, in fact, that this. That is the case. Um, you have the United States government that has a defense budget of uh, some $400 billion a year and that employs spies and informants uh, all over the world um, and was still incapable of preventing um, this, uh, this terrible attack in, uh, in September two years ago. 
um, you would think that an organization that is equipped with with these uh, budgets would uh, would certainly be able to do this. And uh, uh, not only did the United States government were not able to uh, uh, to prevent it, in, in many ways they provoked these uh, provoked these conflicts by getting involved in uh, in the in the affairs of uh, of other countries all around all around the globe and that you only do get involved in the affairs of uh, of other people again if you um, if you can rely on on taxing on taxing power uh, and don't have to spend your own money uh, getting involved in other uh, in other people's affairs so the united states does, the government actually creates uh, dangers rather than preventing dangers uh, from uh, from occurring to its uh, to its citizens, and in addition, uh, the United States government has, uh, as one would expect of an organization that uh, that gets its income from taxes, has disarmed uh, increasingly its own uh, citizenry and has made it thereby far easier for prospective uh, gangsters or terrorists uh, to uh, uh, yeah, to uh, be successful with their attacks against uh, against American civilians. Um, and it makes us we, more dependent on the state to protect us. Well, I did not get that question, please. I'm sorry. It makes us more dependent on the state to protect us when we... It, makes, it, it makes us more dependent on the state to uh, protect us. Uh, yes, I, and I think that's what that's what states in general, of course, like to create uh, a large dependent class in all in, in all walks of of life uh, who have an interest in in preserving the state because they receive certain handouts from the state that the state necessarily must have taken. From somebody else, otherwise he could not hand out anything. The, the, the main point here is that why should it, why should an institution that can fund itself out of taxes um, and um, that is obviously ultimate judge? Why should such an institution be particularly good in uh, defending us? And the answer seems to be quite clear: and No, they are not good at defending us. Look, the United States military. Or the defense ministry actually uh, engages not in defense of the United States, but interferes in the affairs of uh, of foreign foreign countries. So it can be called more uh, a department of, of foreign aggression than a department of uh, national defense. Right, and you know, parenthetically, it was actually called the Department of War all the way up until the end of World War II, and. America decided to become an empire. They renamed it the Department of Defense, which would definitely be a more honest, uh, honest label for this this department. Yes, I agree. Okay, so I understand what you're saying that our government actually provokes enemies, makes enemies for the American people to have to deal with, and then how September 11th is a perfect example of how the trillions of dollars spent apparently don't do any good for defending the country. But I wonder. 
What's the alternative? I mean, if we're really to privatize defense, what about all those stealth bombers and nuclear missiles and Trident submarines? Who are we going to put in charge of those? Yeah, that is a difficult, difficult question. What we do with all of these, um, with all of these weapons? I would think uh, a weapon set can only, only be used um, in a way that automatically implies the killing of innocent civilians, such like atomic weapons. They, they probably should be, uh, should be destroyed. Uh, only weapons that can be used for a targeted response. Um, should in general be uh, considered to be acceptable uh, acceptable weapons. That is, weapons that can make a distinction between uh, the aggressor and innocent civilians, between combatants and non-combatants, uh, weapons uh, the use of which do not or does not allow to make this type of distinction as uh, as nuclear nuclear bombs, for instance. Uh, as in the case of nuclear bombs, those, uh, those weapons should be destroyed, I assume. Um, well, that leaves open the question about well, what about all the other countries? I mean, if America decided that we were going to go ahead and abolish the national government and just uh, have a free society without a state here, there's still the matter of the Russians and their 5,000 nuclear weapons, right? Um, yes, that, that is true. Um, but again, what one has to take into consideration is um, that in that every state that attacks another territory uh, needs some sort of support in its own population. That is, you must identify some sort of enemy; otherwise, the population will not support. Uh, its state going to war. The United States did that obviously when, when they, um, when they went to Iraq. Uh, they had to portray Saddam Hussein as, uh, as an evil monster capable of attacking the United States, which all turned out to be, uh, turned out to be wrong. But nonetheless, this is ob obviously necessary in order to create a public opinion that allows you to do uh, to do such a thing, but imagine that you would have a territory in which people, in which there would be no state, people would engage in self-defense, that is, people would be heavily armed, far more heavily than they currently are, um, there would be operating uh, militias uh, in existence, um, there would be mighty insurance companies uh, in existence that uh, that ensure various uh, the, the various property owners in these free territories uh, against uh, various contingencies inc including uh, terrorist attacks and so and, and so forth uh, in such a territory there would be there would be no one who would have done anything that an opposing state could use as an excuse to attack um, because uh, in such in a, such a free society, nobody would engage in in provocative uh, provocative attacks. Insurance companies would actually outlaw people who are insured from engaging in provocative uh, behavior. Um, so it would be very difficult to define an enemy. 
uh, and you must have an enemy in order to persuade your own population to go along with your war-making plans. So the best free societies would also be far wealthier. You see, like you have, you have would have extremely wealthy societies, have heavily armed, um, uh, who have engaged in in nothing but peaceful commercial relationships with the rest of the world. What motive could you possibly have and what motive could you possibly sell to your own population to attack a place like this? Right, at this point, it's only our aggression overseas that could justify any action against us here. Right. I see what you're saying there. Uh, Right. Let me get back on the... I don't mean to divert too much off of the war topic um, for now, but you did mention... A society where everything is privatized and where uh, big insurance companies protect uh, property, that kind of thing. And that that brings to mind, um, I, I mean, I guess that's what you call the natural order, right? The, right. the free right. market without right. state interference. Right. And that brings to mind, well, what about monopolies and company towns and Pinkerton thugs? And, I mean, there's... I'm sure a gigantic segment of the population of this country, including myself, who uh, wouldn't want to live in a corporate USA any more than a statist USA. Uh, no. Um, a, corpor- a corporatist USA, if that only means uh, that there exist in, in the United States uh, companies that uh, have to find voluntarily paying clients for their services, I cannot see anything wrong with uh, wrong with this. Um, the only difference that exists between, uh, let's say, big firms on the one hand and, and the government, uh, some people consider that government even to be a big firm, the only, the only difference is uh, that, that the government can insist you must pay a certain amount whether you like the service that you get uh, or not, otherwise you will be locked up. But there is no such thing as Ford ever locking you up or threatening to lock you up or General Motors to do the same to you um, if you uh, break off ties with General Motors or Ford. So I, I do not think that we have to be afraid of anything that happens in the free market. You might be right in the sense that many of these huge industrial conglomerates would not even have come into existence if it were not for the state creating them, giving them special advantages as compared with smaller, more efficient competitors. So I I, I believe that uh, in an environment where governments would not heavily regulate the economy, uh, we would have a far more fierce competition uh, taking place than is currently the case, and this far fiercer competition would lead to the breakup of many of these supersized uh, companies that have uh, that could be brought into existence only because they were protected largely from competition through government regulations. So you don't think we would have to worry about, for example, um, private armies of Pinkerton thugs working on behalf of the corporation? Uh, you know, uh, using violence against strikers or... Um, no, 
Yeah. I mean, this is something in the history of the United States where, oh, you want to go on strike, huh? And the Rockefellers just hire some Pinkerton private army thugs to come. It, it, again, it depends. It depends on what you describe as a strike. If if a strike takes place that involves um, the destruction of property of the firm or the firm owner, then of course uh, the uh, the owner of the firm is entitled to use violence against the strikers. Um, if the strikers are actually only boycotteurs, so these people just say, we will not work for you unless you change your opinion and go home, uh, then, of course, it would not be permitted to use violence against them. But if, if they, um, if they uh, damage property, then of course violence can be, can be used against them. Uh, and I think currently there exists to a certain extent a lawless um, state of affairs because labor unions are exempt from the normal laws of liability applying to everyone else. They, they can cause damage on the property and with the property of others without being held uh, liable for the damage that occurs. Uh, they can do things that a private person uh, could never do. If I, for instance, um, wanted to rent out my house and uh, the first person who um, made me an offer made an offer that I found unacceptable and he had to leave my house and would now remain in front of my front door and prevent anybody else from entering my premises and making me another offer, do I have the right to kick this person off of my premises? And I think, yes, of course I have the right to do this. And private employers currently are not entitled to do this uh, in, uh, with, uh, with labor union members. So I think um, there exists a certain a certain myth um, that um, uh, that striking workers were mistreated in the past. I think in many cases they got exactly what they deserved. Well, you know, I refer you to the Ludlow massacre in Colorado, where John Rockefeller Jr. ordered the massacre of a bunch of men, women, and children, and no one was responsible for it. I do not know the details of this of this particular case. You might uh, you might well be right. Um, well, there but, were there uh, were quite a few, and and I mean the thing is, you know, a lot of uh, labor activists are communists, and uh, I'm sure you know had uh, pretty revolutionary um, tactics and that kind of thing. But at the same time, you know, it's even in a free market. I mean, it's perfectly okay for a group of workers to come together and form an organization and bargain collectively, and then you're just buying their labor on the free market for however much they yes, set their price yes, at, yes. right? Of course, that is, perfectly, that is perfectly possible. That can occur. Um, my emphasis is just private property rights are, so to speak, the basic the, uh, the foundation of, of a free society, uh, and they have to be protected. And this is, this is allegedly what governments are supposed to do. And coming back to the beginning of uh, of our conversation, uh, in a way, it is very funny that an institution that finances and funds itself by taxes, that is by expropriating private property owners in in some way or other, 
uh, that uh, institutions such as government uh, is considered to be a good protector of private property because, in fact, it is a private property protector that first must expropriate before it can have the resources in order to engage in any type of protection. Um, so in in the very nature of government, there is already a contradiction uh, built into an, expropri an expropriating property protector. That would be a, a nice description of, uh, of a government indicating, in a way, what is fundamentally wrong with this institution. Yeah, that is a pretty big contradiction right off the bat. And, of course, there's also the doctrine of eminent domain, right, where all the land really belongs to the state first, and then they let you hold some of it as well. Right, right. Um, and they would like to introduce that, of course, with respect to all earned incomes also, uh, that they can just take your income away at any, any time they, uh, they feel, because ultimately they consider them that themselves to be the owner of all of your income. They just let you have a certain, uh, a certain amount left over to you. Our guest today is Hans Hermann Hopp. He's a professor of economics at UNLV and a scholar at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. Uh, you can read his archives at lewrockwell.com. Sir, in the introduction to your book, Democracy, The God That Failed, you contrast Woodrow Wilson's democracy, which I put in ironic quotes there, with the old Habsburg monarchies of Europe, and you come down on the side of the kings. Why? Um... Yeah, I think this is also one of the great myths of modern history that, that the transition from old-style monarchical systems to modern-style democracies represents some sort of civilizational progress. In a way, it is easy to understand why this myth arises because history is always written by the victorious forces in, in history. Uh, just imagine, for instance, the Soviet Union would have come out successful out of the uh, Cold War. How, how textbooks would be different now from what they are. So the America being the successful, the most successful country, so to speak, they, they write history. And uh, since America has become, at least uh, after, after Lincoln, uh, so to speak, a typical uh, typical democracy, uh, they present history to us as uh, this transition was a great, great progress. And uh, the American neoconservatives um, were one of the, uh, among the warmongers in, in the Iraq case. Uh, they even go as far as to say that uh, with the development of a constitutional democracy for which they consider the United States so to speak the best example we have arrived at the end of history there is so to speak no ideological institutional progress to be made anymore we have we have constructed the wisest political system that can be constructed and if you are of this opinion then of course it is not difficult to see how these people then also feel entitled that they can impose this system to the rest of the world because they are so certain that this 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 is the the end point. But uh, but as I explained in my book, there is a this this is a 
fundamental and very simple, simple error. Um, I would claim, for instance, that um, if the United States would have stayed under King George, uh, that the economic progress might have been faster and better than what actually took place. And the fundamental reasons for this are simply, simply the following. A, a king um, is supposed to be the owner of the country, and he considers these, the citizens as his as his tenants. Um, and his interest is, yeah, to preserve the value of uh, of the country, because as the owner, he can pass it on to uh, future generations. He is interested in preserving the capital stock that is embodied in in countries. And if you have a democratic caretaker like uh, parliamentarians or prime ministers or presidents or people like this, who are just uh, for a certain period of time in charge, um, they are not the owner of the country. They can just make use of the country during this uh, period of time. They cannot pass it on to the next generation, to whoever they wish, so they have a short-sighted view. And because they are not the owner of the capital stock, they will increase current income at the expense of uh, of capital consumption. Um, but this their motto will be what I cannot loot within the next four years I will not be loot ever again in the future uh, the example I think that I give my students frequently for this is to explain this difference is the following imagine I give you uh, I have a house or two houses and in one case I tell you you, I make you the regular owner of this house. Um, you, can, uh, you can sell it in the market. Uh, you can pass it on as a form of inheritance and so forth. And in the other case, I tell you, for four years or six years or whatever time span is, you can make use of the house. You can keep all the income that you can derive from the house but you do not own the house. It is you cannot sell the house in the market, and you cannot pass it on to to future generations. Does that make a difference in how you behave vis-à-vis -vis your house? And the answer is, of course, it does. In one case, your interest is, so to speak, to uh, for the caretaker. It is to to get as much money as I can possibly uh, can out of. Uh, out of this house in the shortest possible time, even if the house then afterwards lies in ruins, because the ruins, that is the capital stock, I do not own. I do not care for it. I only care for the current income. Would you do the same thing, however, if you were a regular owner of the house? Um, and the answer is, of course you would not do this. You would be interested in, in drawing a current income from the house, but you would be at the same time interested in, in preserving the capital stock of the house. The house should be intact uh, and stay intact because you just want to pass it on in the future generation. And if you don't keep it intact, you would notice it because the price in the market that you would get for the house would continuously fall. 
So, in the same sense, I think a king has more long-term perspective. He is interested in preserving the existing capital, and democratic caretakers are people who are short-term oriented and increase their current income at the expense of uh, of capital consumption and capital um, uh, capital destruction. Um, that is that is one major advantage of um, of monarchies. There is another one. Um, there is, uh, and that is an advantage that most people initially uh, um, think of as a disadvantage. Um, that is, most people tend to think, isn't it great about democracy that that everybody can become a president or a prime minister, uh, whereas in uh, under monarchy you become king by accident of of birth, uh, so to speak. In people argue, for instance, that uh, in all other areas we reason that competition is better than monopoly, uh, and isn't democracy an example where there exists competition for governmental positions, whereas in the monarchy case, there exists a monopolist, one guy, and only he can be it, and whoever he determines as his successor can be it. But in, but in fact, the situation is such that we want competition only insofar as the production of goods is concerned. Um, that is, there it is bad if we have uh, a monopolist. Uh, there we want to have uh, people competing against each other in order to make sure that the, the quality of the good improves and that the price of the good falls. Um, but we do not necessarily want to have competition when it comes to the production of bad things. And this is precisely what governments produce. I mean, you, if they tax somebody, we cannot say that this is a good that they do a person. They do something bad um, to a person, and they can never do anything good unless they have done something bad before. So do we want to have competition in that area too? And again, there I would very much doubt this. Um, you can say the following. Look, in the monarch gets to his position by accident of birth. Um, that makes it possible that he is a bad guy. But at least that cannot exclude that he is a bad guy. If he is a bad guy, however, uh, there is his family, the dynasty, who is very much concerned about uh, will this, this king or this queen ruin um, the position of, of the dynasty. If he is too crazy, the dynasty has an interest to either... Uh, surround him with close advisors who curtail his stupidity, so to speak. Yeah. Or if uh, if it needs to be done, they might be even willing to just to de uh, determine a, a close relative to kill to kill the king in order to preserve uh, to preserve the dynasty. On the other hand, um, because he gets his position by accident of birth. He can also be a decent and harmless dilettante. He can be a nice 
a nice uncle, so to speak. At least that is not excluded by precisely because it is accidental that he gets this position. And now think about uh, how yeah, democratic politicians come into their in, into their position. Um, uh, they must be successful demagogues, liars, swindlers, uh, bribers, um, uh, even people possibly who have engaged in many cruel things in order to rise to high-ranking positions. Um, that is, uh, they have characteristics that that in normal that in normal uh, normal parts of life would be considered to be um, yeah, undesirable characteristics. Um, so a democracy virtually assures that only bad and dangerous people will ever rise to the top. Smooth, bad and dangerous people will rise to the top. Um, so I think even in this regard, um, monarchies are significantly superior over, um, over democracies. Okay, and I'm going to interrupt you here just to defend you, because I know that somebody's just tuning in the audience and uh, tuning in on the radio, and they don't know. The guy I'm interviewing here, guys, is a total anarchist, uh, anarcho-capitalist, and he's not for monarchies or democracies at all, but he's in this conversation comparing and contrasting the two and saying if you have to have a state, a monarchy might be better than a democracy for these reasons. So right. I don't want anybody thinking that I'm interviewing a royalist here on the interview show. This guy's the most uh, anarchist guy I've ever met. Uh, I'm reading his articles, and he's calling Hayek a statist. <laughs> Believe yeah, that. No, uh, that, is, that is important. And, uh, yes, the monarchy is only presented, so to speak, as a second uh, the second best or uh, the better of two evils uh, rather than uh, a solution and uh, the it might be interesting to hear the idea that I had before I came up with this uh, reconstruction of um, monarchies and uh, and democracies a very similar an analogy um, look at the system like like slavery um, there exist two types of slavery. There exists the type that we had in the United States, where you have private owners of, of slaves. Um, and uh, there exists the type of slavery that we had in the Soviet Union. Very few people have ever considered that to be a slavery system, but the two criteria of slavery apply perfectly also in the case of the Soviet Union. That is... Um, you could not run away. Uh, if you tried to run away, they would shoot you. Um, and and the communist could assign you to certain tasks, uh, to, to do certain work. And that is exactly what the slave master also can do. He can prevent you from running away and assign you to certain tasks. But the difference between the two systems is very similar to the idea in democracy and Monarchy. In one in one case, Gorbachev, Lenin, Stalin, so forth. They were not the private owner of the slaves. Uh, that is, they could not sell them in in the market or so, or rent their services out. But they could make use of them. They could assign them to certain amounts of work. Uh, whereas the private slave owner, of course, uh, can sell the slave and rent the, the services of the slave out. 
And the question is then, uh, if you only have a choice to be a slave, would you rather want to be a privately owned slave? Or would you rather want to be a slave like in the Soviet Union that is publicly owned? And there you notice, uh, again, the same sort of thing, privately owned slaves uh, are by and large treated much better than publicly owned slaves. Or in the Soviet Union, for instance, the life expectancy of people in the last few decades of the Soviet Union fell. Uh, whereas life expectancy uh, for for slaves in, during the periods of private slavery generally rose, in the, obviously in the interest of the slave owner. Uh, fertility rates uh, for privately owned slaves were normal fertility rates, just like other people for in the Soviet Union, they they declined. Um, it it was a relatively rare occurrence that a private slave owner would kill the slaves because that is the ultimate act of capital consumption. You have an investment in the slaves. You would not just want to waste it away. But in the Soviet Union, where you only can uh, can take advantage of of the labor of the labor force, but you don't own this, you don't own the slaves. Millions of people in peacetime were wasted away in uh, in various industrial projects without any without any problem whatsoever. That is, the, the the value of human life in the Soviet Union was infinitely lower than was the value of a private slave to a slave, private slave owner. Well, um, there were slave owners in the South who decided that it was actually, now that they go back and do their books, it's cheaper to go ahead and let a slave die and buy a new one than go through a bunch of medical care and... and oh, yeah, yeah. You see, I'm not saying that these considerations can never appear, but it is not, it is not difficult to see that from the point of view of the, uh, of the slave owners in the Soviet Union, this was, so to speak, the standard attitude that you had right. towards, uh, towards people. Um, so I, all, all I wanted to do here is just explain, so to speak, a little analogy between the democracy case and the monarchy case uh, that I tried to show. One, one is... The, the lesser evil, the monarchy, and here of two evils of slavery, so to speak, the, the private slavery seems to me less evil than the public slavery that existed in other places. I see. And also, um, on the subject of monarchies and democracies, you brought up the American Revolution, and I just wanted to point out that there were a lot more forces at play during the American Revolution than just economics. I mean, there was the whole idea of the divine right of kings and the claim of the Continental Congress that, in fact, everyone has that divine right to be their own king, and so you're not fit to be the ruler of us, a free people, and uh, that kind of thing. And so you know, I wonder if maybe uh, we're making the same mistake as Karl Marx in reducing everything to economics when, in fact, there's religious attitudes and, and all different sort of uh, things that come into account besides economics. Uh, absolutely. No, I, uh, I absolutely agree. Of course, economic uh, ideas are very important, um, but, uh, uh, but there are other things such as religion and culture which are as important. Uh, and you, you'll see in my, um, in my democracy book in particular how uh, 
sympathetic I am towards the idea of uh, secessionism uh, as a means, in a way, to create um, yeah to create smaller smaller units uh, of uh, of more homogeneous uh, people uh, to allow it. Uh, people of different different religion, of different uh, language, of different uh, culture, uh, to uh, live together according to their own uh, to their own lights and engage in free trade um, with other uh, with other small territories who might internally have uh, uh, very different religious structure, linguistic structure, and so forth. Um, so I, I promote um, as a second best alternative also the idea opposed to what the, our elites have in mind for us, that is the idea of a one world state. Um, my, um, my view is it would be far better for uh, for mankind, not only economically, but also culturally uh, and socially and so forth, if we would have instead a world that would consist of whatever, tens of thousands of independent political units and and free cities uh, engaged in um, in free trade with with each other, but being internally quite different from uh, from other places. So a, a radical decentralization of uh, of the world, rather than the current projects of creating ever more centralization and ultimately uh, aspiring to create create a world state. I'm so glad you brought that up because, really, I mean, throughout the 20th century, the leaders of the movement for the world state have been the permanent family establishments in America, such as the Rockefellers, the Harrimans, and the Bushes, they're the ones who want this world state, uh, acting in what they perceive to be their own long-term interest. For for obvious reasons, yes. I think those people who are in command of the American government hope, of course, that it will be the American government that will play the leading role in this uh, future world government. there are also intentions to create, obviously, a one-world currency. And again, I, I'm sure that the American leaders expect that um, that they will be the ones that uh, um, that are the dominating people when it comes to the running of this world central bank, which issues uh, one-world paper cur- paper currency. Yes, I, I think these sorts of tendencies. Uh, are, are underway not only in the United States, but uh, they have drawn many Europeans and Asian uh, influential people in, in, into these circles too. And uh, uh, and it is important that in the general public some sort of alternative vision um, is promoted to this uh, one world vision which the uh, which the elites present to us. Well, and a big part of their elitist uh, one-world system that they're setting up is free trade agreements, right? NAFTA and GATT and the free trade area of the Americas. The European Union, of course, started off as a free trade zone. 
And um, I wonder how you see the correlation there between opening up all the markets and, I mean, basically, in fact, I think this is something I read on Mises that uh, borders are created to keep products out. That's what they're for. And I just wonder, you know, if we if we have such open borders and free trade with everyone and everything, at some point, are we going to have 10,000 tiny little sovereignties, or are we just going to have one big state over the whole planet? Let me just... Uh, Will we be of, able to choose which way it goes? Let me talk about the, 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 the free trade agreements. I mean, um, they are free trade agreements only in name. Um, the American, the North American Free Trade Agreement is some sort of document of well above thousand pages, um, and the free trade agreement only needs two sentences. So whoever wants to send something out can send it out, and whoever wants to buy something from somebody abroad can do so too. Um, so it has little to do with free trade. It is more an agreement between governments to give advantages to select industries in both in both countries. Um, in the European in the European case, it is basically the same is basically the same thing. It has nothing to do with free trade, but it has to do with with harmonizing the tax and the regulation structure that exists in in European countries and and makes them it makes them so to speak equally uh, uncompetitive. Um, if you have tax A in Germany and you have tax B in France, then the European integration makes sure that both Germany and France have both types of taxes. If Germany regulates the beer industry and France regulates the baking industry, then the European integration consists in uh, Germany regulates baking and beer brewing and France does the same. Um, Great, that's free trade, Rockefeller. That is that's that's free trade, the yeah Rockefeller style or whatever. But it, this is this is not really what what economists usually describe as uh, as free trade. This is an, up, an upward harmonization of taxation uh, and regulation in, in in order to prevent basically that people have a reason to move from one place to another. Um, they want to reduce competition between uh, between between the various countries, and uh, not by accident do they complain, especially about you know, such spoilers as uh, Switzerland and Liechtenstein, for instance, which are not members of the European Community and have lower taxes and less regulations, um, and uh, and people. In put their money in those places rather than put their money into countries of the European community and the European community of course uh, is annoyed at this and wants to yeah, force them also to adopt the same uh, bank secrecy laws, the same uh, taxation rules that exist in, uh, in the greater Europe. So this is the type of um, uh, of um, Free market that the the elites have um, uh, have in have in mind it has nothing to do with genuine free trade. This has just to do with regulating the market in such a way that it benefits um, uh, government connected industries in uh, in the various participating states. 
what do you say to people who say that the move toward a world state is simply a natural course? They say, look at history, and you had tiny little city-states in Greece, and and then the size of the countries just got bigger and bigger, and now we're ready to merge North and South America together and merge all Europe into one nation, and that we eventually have to have a world government kind of idea. I mean, you can you can see that these tendencies have existed as long as mankind exists, so to speak. There exist tendencies towards centralization and tendencies towards decentralization. The, the centralizing tendencies have been the, the stronger one over the long haul of um, of history. I have a chapter in my Democracy: The Good, The God That Failed book on this on this issue. Um, uh, on this issue too and again we can explain why that is um, look if you ask yourself how aggressive will you be in your own behavior and uh, you construct two examples in one case you have to pay for your own aggression uh, out of your own resources you must buy your own bodyguards you must provide the ammunition, weapons, and so forth, and you must do the fighting. And in the other case, uh, you can yeah, you can take the resources of other people, make other people be your bodyguard, and so forth, that is, be in the position of the, tax, of the taxing state. Under what circumstances will you likely be yeah, more keen to engage in aggressive behavior? And the answer is, of course, if you have the right to tax then you will be likely more aggressive than you would be if you had to pay all of all of the expenses expenses connected with an aggression out of your own pocket. So it's not difficult to explain why states are aggressive. Um, and then they come into conflict with each other because people move move away from one to the other. States all begin very small. Um, and then there is uh, people vote with their feet from go to places that are more moderate in terms of uh, taxes and regulations. Um, states don't like to see that uh, happening because their milk cows are milking, so to speak, on uh, on other grounds, not their not their own. Uh, and then they get involved in in war and the competition between states in war is eliminative not like Ford and GM can both stay in existence even though they compete against each other the competition must not end with one must smash the other but in a you know when states get into conflict with with each other then the result must be one must smash the other because you cannot have two taxing agencies and two ultimate judges on, on the same territory, only one. And then you need to explain what, what states will tend to win in these wars and what states tend to lose in these wars. And if everything else is roughly the same, we can say that states that are moderate as far as taxation and regulation is concerned uh, and who... Uh, rule over a relatively prosperous uh, population will tend to beat in the long run states that are um, less moderate, more brutal in terms of taxation and regulation because their populations 
will by by and large be poor populations and in a war you need productive populations who provide you with ammunition and uh, soldiers and uh, uh, and food stuff to feed to feed the soldiers and so forth um, so it is the moderate states that tend to beat um, the yeah, the more the more brutal more brutal states because they have Deal, they have a more productive uh, population. That explains why a country like Great Britain became uh, a big superpower, uh, and then after Great Britain, why the United States became um, a big a big superpower. Um, they were more moderate internally, wealthier internally, and can can beat other. Other states who are more oppressive internally and are unproductive internally relatively easily. It explains even phenomena such as why is it that the United States, for instance, was in its foreign policies comparatively aggressive um, as compared to the former Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, so that people don't misunderstand me here, I have nothing good to say about the Soviet Union. It's the most oppressive, the most brutal, terrible regime that, that one can imagine. I have some first-hand experience from that because my parents were refugees from uh, from East Germany and were expropriated. Um, yeah, so I have no sympathy whatsoever for that system, but the Russian leaders knew full well that they had basket case economies and they knew full well that they would only be able to militarily succeed against others if those countries were far smaller than they themselves uh, or if they were large, if they would engage in some sort of surprise attack where you don't have to rely for a lengthy period of time on a productive population. So it was as evil as they were internally, they were of course rational enough to recognize that their um, that their external ambitions could not possibly be fulfilled with basket case, basket case economies. But in the United States, you just have the opposite. You have the governments that are, at least comparatively speaking, uh, moderate as compared with many uh, many other places. I mean, they're terrible as compared to what uh, happened in the 19th century, but nonetheless, relatively speaking, still uh, still among the better ones. But they knew, of course, that they would come out almost invariably in any type of military conflict successfully. That was not only the superior size, uh, the, the economy far more productive, um, so if you know that you will win in any of these conflicts, of course you will engage in far more conflicts than if you are afraid that you will lose them, uh, or that it will be very difficult for you to win them. So it is not an accident, I think, that the United States is involved in all sorts of little affairs all over the world and makes itself enemies all over the world in, in a completely unnecessary way. Um, uh, I'll tell you what, let's take a break right here, and when okay. we come back, we'll talk about this permanent state of warfare that, like you say, America apparently can't afford to carry on, uh, at least for now, and where this might lead in the future. Our guest today is Hans Hermann Hopp. 
is a professor of economics at UNLV and a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. We are talking about the individual, the state, democracy, free economics, and all the rest of that. So we're going to play a little song and take a break. Everybody stay right there. You're listening to Radio Chaos, 95.9 FM in Austin, Texas. All right, everybody, we're back on the weekend interview show. I'm your host, Philip Drew, administrator. My guest is Hans Hoppe. He is a professor of economics at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas, a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. He's the author of the new book, The Myth of National Defense, and his last one, which is uh, I've read the introduction to, is uh, incredible, Democracy, the God that Failed. And uh, you can look him up on his website, HansHoppe.com. It's H-O-P-P-E. And uh, also he writes uh, at LewRockwell.com. You can find archives of his many articles. Uh, let's see. Okay, so when we left off, we were talking about how the Soviet Union never tried to take over the world because they knew they couldn't. Their economy uh, could not afford to do it. And how in a country as free and strong as America is, we can produce enough that, say, for example, the neoconservatives in charge of American policy now believe that the American people have the unlimited capacity to overthrow the whole world for them. And I wonder, we seem to be on this course, and uh, I haven't been seeing many uh, neocons getting fired lately or anything, so uh, it looks like you know Syria, Iran, Saudi Arabia are on the list uh, for this administration. Um, or they would very much like it to be anyway. So I guess what I'd like to ask you is, where is this state of perpetual war going to lead? What is going to happen to the core of the empire as we expand it? All, all states like crises. Um, crises are always good in, or, in order to tell the own population that it's time to give up some of their rights and hand them over to the government and make the government even stronger. Um, so because of that, you can um, you can predict that we will uh, go from one little crisis uh, to the to, to the next. I mean, they were happy with with 9/11 in a way because that gives them the possibility of introduce something like the Patriot uh, the Patriot Act. Um, the people rally behind. The administration, um, when uh, when soldiers fight in um, in foreign in foreign countries, um, but but of course all of this has to be paid for somehow. Not only financially, which we already see how difficult this uh, um, this is to finance all of these uh, adventures there in Iraq. First to bomb the place to ground, and then and then. Uh, use American taxpayer uh, taxpayer money to um, to build the place um, to build the place back up. Um, but it is also expensive in the sense that um, that America, by engaging in this foreign policy, increasingly loses uh, goodwill among among other people. Um, I think if you would take a survey uh, the world all over and would ask people, you know, if you couldn't live in your own country anymore and would have to seek 
refuge someplace, where would you go? I think America would rank uh, by far number one. Um, and that would be even far more pronounced so um, if America would just mind its own business and leave other people alone, let other people do their nonsense uh, that they want to do. They will have to learn themselves as long as there are no immediate danger um, to the security of the United States. Why interfere there? You always interfere only on one side of the population in these countries and you automatically make the other part of the population your enemies. And there is no need to make these, um, to make these enemies. So as, I think, as the size of uh, the territory controlled by the United States increases, uh, you will get, you will get ever more in, internal uh, warfare, um, the terrorist, terrorist activities growing from inside. Well, and it also brings up the question of whether we can afford it economically. I mean, we're in a recession right now. I know the newspaper said that we had, what, 17% growth in the last quarter. I don't know uh, whose algebra calculations are you Yeah, yeah, no, I think those are, those are probably just uh, fantasy numbers, and they have also something to do with, with the fact that GNP, how GNP is, um, is calculated. Um, for instance, every military expenditure is considered to be um, uh, is included in, in in GNP, even though they don't contribute anything to to, to human well-being. Uh, after all, they're just tanks getting shot down there and standing around doing nothing uh, to benefit any any Americans in any way. Nonetheless, you have to pay for for all of these. Uh, uh, materials and manpower. So you're saying that the spending for the Iraq war is going into the their calculations for the gross national product? And yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> that's hilarious. I'm sorry. Yeah. I think that's um, great. You see, like, all government... $7 billion out of money, uh, money this, out of nothing. This is general, the general problem with, with GNP statistic is uh, for... Um, uh, for the, in order to calculate the value of government services, because they are not sold and and bought on in in the market, you simply take whatever it costs to build them, and then you say this is so to speak uh, a valuable um, a valuable product valued at such and such a price, because that's the amount of money it costs us to cost us to produce it. Um, so. So even even things that are not sold and have no buyer and have no uh, have no seller, even even those things are included in in gross national product. Yes. yes. Okay, but so still here we are in the middle of building a world empire, and we have uh, seven trillion dollars almost of accumulated national debt, almost half a trillion dollar deficit just this year. So then the question is. As powerful an economy as America does have, you know, with all their funny numbers notwithstanding, can we really afford to overthrow all these rogue states and bring them all into the international community at gunpoint? No, obviously not. Um, 
I mean, you you already see that you are on on a begging spree for money to go to other countries to just help you out in uh, in Iraq. Um, and uh, if these uh, attacks on the American occupying forces in Iraq continue, um, you will not be able to to withdraw easily. This this will be a permanent permanent financial burden. Um, and and contemplating going to places like Iran, which has far bigger population, is uh, far more difficult to control. Also, um, because of its geography and so forth, it's almost almost unthinkable. Um, so, no, for mil- for military reasons, they cannot um, uh, they cannot go on and on and on. They will have to interrupt and then choose uh, selected uh, selected targets. Wow, so even the most powerful and richest nation in the history of the whole world can't take over the world. No other, like no, other place, no other empire could do it. No, the United States cannot. If, the, if there would be a two or three front war, they would already be incapable of fighting it. Uh, let's say... Let's say China would uh, would try to invade uh, Taiwan or the former Formosa. Uh, could the United States engage in such a thing? The answer would be no. They don't have the military power to have troops stationed in in uh, in Iraq and at the same time fight uh, fight a war there also. Um, well, that so makes I, a lot I think of sense, they, but I don't think that Paul Wolfowitz reads LewRockwell.com very much, and I wonder whether. You know, the people in charge of the policy have your same understanding about the impossibility of these kind of adventures. Because they seem, I mean, Taiwan and China is a perfect example. I think this uh, current group of foreign policy people would do everything they could to intervene in this situation in Taiwan. The politicians are people who sometimes have no concept of of scarcity. Um, And they are probably uh, stimulated in this feeling by being in control of an institution like the Federal Reserve that can print money at will. Uh, that gives you the illusion, so to speak, that you can just accomplish whatever you want uh, by just printing up the money, but the consequence will be just that this will be hyperinflationary conditions, um, and you will get uh, problems internally. That is, there will be a rebellion of, of the United States population if that happens because that would wipe out their pension funds, their plans for retirement and so forth. So um, it's very difficult maneuver to pull off. Right. Well, it's that the TV is always going to blame inflation on wages going up instead of the government creating money out of nothing. Right, right, right. Some foreign speculators who, who do these sorts of things instead of asking oneself the simple question who who is it uh, in the United States who can print money and who cannot and the answer is there is only one institution that can do it and everybody else is considered to be a counterfeiter if they do it right and that uh, one group definitely isn't the wage earners they're not the ones causing the inflation it must be the Fed it, of course it is always it is, it is always the Fed uh, because the government is the only institution that prints money, and uh, since they uh, have the right to print money, they will 
useless power. They were printed. Uh, I mean, imagine I would, I would appoint you, uh, to the position where you are the only person in the country that can print U.S. dollar notes and nobody else could, could do it. Um, everybody else would be labeled a counterfeiter. Would you, would you print dollar notes? And the answer is, of course, it costs you nothing to print them, and then you can go out and buy real things with these things. So, of course, you will do it. Uh, you want to have a new car, you want to have a new house, then you find out that you have far more friends than you ever thought. They also come to you because you have the magic wand. Um, and I think politicians, by and large, or many of many of them, um, believe that with this with this tool in hand, uh, the money creation tool in hand, you can uh, you can fund almost everything under the sun. Well, sure. John Maynard Keynes said that it would uh, make everyone on Earth a millionaire. I guess he um, wasn't taking into account how little a million dollars would be worth by then. He, he actually, which is not frequently quoted by contemporary Keynesians um, that he had actually in his main main book on um, money, employment and interest uh, a passage where he said that if people would follow his monetary schemes of basically engaging in inflation that he could uh, abolish scarcity within one generation um which is almost yeah a religious a fanatically religious belief and has very little to do with economics, but it tells you something about uh, Keynes and it tells you something about the 20th century that a man with these views would become the most famous economist of the 20th century. Well, on supply side, I'm I'm so glad I got an economist on the phone because I've been I've been trying to work this out. I believe I remember learning in school that. Supply side and demand side economics are just two sides of Keynesian theory, and so th when they say that George Bush is uh, has a conservative uh, economic policy or whatever, um, they're really still only talking about the right side of Keynesian socialism, right? It's not like the Republicans follow Mises doctrine. No, no. The, the, the the, the difference between the Republicans and the Democrats in this regard, I think, is only is only this. First, uh, under Republicans, the government power grows faster than under Democrats because everybody expects it grows less fast, and you get away with actually growing faster. And the Democrats, everybody expects that it will grow very fast, and so they must curtail their desires a little bit. For instance, under Bush, the government size grew far, uh, far more so than under Clinton. Uh, and under Reagan, the government size grew astronomically too. The Republicans have far too good an image in all of this. And when it comes to the Keynesian aspects, the only difference is this: the Democrat would, the Democrats would, so to speak, uh, inflate and indebt themselves for the purpose of all sorts of social policies um, and the Republicans would do it for all sorts of military purposes um, this, is, this, is, this was a big stick of, uh, of Reagan uh, who, uh, who indebted the United States as 
nobody had before, uh, and all of this, or large parts of it, went into the military. Uh, and the Democrats screamed about that, but the only difference would have been for them, so to speak, to instead of spending these, uh, um, these, uh, these loans that they get from the public on, or from the banks, on uh, on military boondoggles, they would spend them on welfare boondoggles. Who gets more welfare, the rich or the poor in this country? Uh, that is, one has to define what welfare is. I'll define it as the government spending tax money giving a subsidy to someone. I mean, whether it's uh, whether it's food stamps or welfare check. Or whether it's yeah, but but you see, there oil. exist, of course, also also welfare policies that consist in um, in granting a certain producer uh, higher higher import tariffs imposed on his foreign competitors, uh -huh. which are not that easy to measure. You don't actually give anything to the American producer. Or you make it more difficult for the foreign competitor to compete against him, which in a way you can, of course, also call welfare or corporate uh, corporate welfare. Um, so in that sense, the rich definitely do get more than the poor. I, I assume these. I'm not a, an, an expert. I have not studied that in great de detail. But the, the the basic idea is that most of the redistribution uh, takes place, so to speak, within the middle class, from one group of the middle class to other groups um, of the middle class. Um, but that does not mean that welfare to the poor does not play an important role also. It does. Um, I mean, look, we have... Um, uh, Medicaid, Medicaid, Medicare uh, provisions. We have food. We have food stamps. We have housing allowance. Um, uh, most of those handouts, of course, do go uh, to poorer people rather than to um, than rather than to middle class people. And again, you can see this is also something that that there has that there has to be some redistribution from rich to the poor, you would expect that under, especially under democratic conditions, again. Um, I always use this example. Imagine we would have one man, one vote on a worldwide scale with a world state. Um, what, what sort of government would we likely get? Uh, we would likely get an Indian-Chinese coalition government, right? Given simply given the size of those of those countries, um, and in order to be re-elected, uh, what would this Indian-Chinese government coalition uh, likely decide how to deal with uh, the Western world? Well, they, would, of, they, they would, of course, uh, rob them blind. Right? I mean, to, to impose huge taxes on them and say, you have whatever, two cars, go on vacation, do this and this nice thing, and look how we live here. So massive redistribution of income has to be handed over from, from the West to these countries. So, yes, and the same thing has also happened 
within each country, within Germany, within France, within the United States, as they gradually expanded the franchise. You know, initially, the franchise was quite severely restricted to, in terms of age uh, and also in terms of uh, property requirements that people had to fulfill um, because people were afraid that if people who have no property can vote, they will, of course, vote themselves the property of those people who do have property. Um, and this is after they expanded the franchise gradually in the 19th century, um, practically everywhere in the Western world. This is, of course, basically what has happened. Um, we have seen in all countries the rise of socialist, or what the United States call liberal movements. Um, I mean, in Europe, liberals are social democrats, and liberals in Europe are free marketeers. I mean, they would be, they would be the they would be the free market. In America, liberals are socialists. In, in America, they are social democrats, right? right. Whereas in, uh, liberals in Europe are still the most free market oriented people. Um, so, but you see, as the franchise was expanded, socialist forces became stronger and stronger and stronger. Um, and classical liberal forces, that is those that wanted to have minimal, minimal government, the government dedicated to no more than uh, the night watchmen to just make sure that nobody beats you and steals from you, uh, those people declined in importance because the masses were attracted by by the socialist promises of making them rich by ripping off uh, people who are in better shape than than they themselves are, not recognizing that in the long run, of course, you harm yourself the most by it because the more rich people there are, the better off are also the poor people in those countries. Um, most people have no idea how under how desperate conditions poor people in other countries have to live. Um, well, I guess the question is how easy it is to get rich if you start off not rich. I mean, if the people live in a society where there's 1% own 95% of all the property, it's not because that 1% is so much smarter and more talented than everybody else. It's because they're thieves, too. No, the, those, those sorts of things are never the result of market competition. No, the, um, there, there's, there's no one who is that, that, that talented. Uh, and at least, uh, and also, these ta these talents do not uh, continue to exist from generation to the next generation to the next generation. Um, so the, even if some people accumulate great fortunes, very frequently they are also quickly dissipated again in uh, in the following generations because uh, they they grow up playboys. Uh, the, the father was a uh, successful entrepreneur, uh, was conservative. Uh, attitudes and the son became uh, liberal playboys and waste the money away. It's the state then that allows the 1% to continually control so much of the wealth. It's not the result of what they call economy of scale and that kind of thing. Where to, to, a large, to a large extent. Remember, I, I recall I uh, mentioned that before. Um, that uh, many large corporations owe their existence to uh, legal protection uh, by the state. Um, just recall the case of Chrysler, 
which was a number of years ago on the verge of bankruptcy. Why didn't it go bankrupt? Because it was considered to be too big to fail. Um, it was kept artificially in existence. Otherwise, it would have broken up into most likely into smaller uh, smaller components. The same thing does not happen, however, to a mom and pop store. Um, that is able, if a mom and pop store goes out of business, uh, nobody will intervene on their behalf. Um, most likely because they have no lobbyists in Washington that uh, that can wine and dine these uh, members on, of Congress and uh, make these decisions. Okay, so if the state was abolished, the left believes that everything would be great, right? The communists think that once the state is abolished, then the whole world will be a wonderful brotherhood of mankind. And yeah. you tend to think that when the state is abolished, everything will work out all right, too, but in uh, different ways. So in different maybe ways. Maybe you can explain right. what you mean and what you think they mean and the differences between the two. I mean, you have to, as long as mankind is what it is, you have to uh, reckon with the existence of murderers and rapists and, and bullies and, uh, and and frauds and uh, and evil people in, in general. That's, this is... Uh, this is part of part of mankind. Um, the only thing that we are capable of doing is to, to set up an institution that makes life as hard as possible for these types of people. Uh, not that we will eliminate them completely, but it, we make it more difficult for them than it currently is. And I think the system that that I have um, in mind is. Um, is something would operate something like this apart from apart from self def apart from self defense uh, i think the most important role uh, as uh, as peacemakers and as judges uh, would be played by um, would be played by insurance um, uh, companies and it is instructive to to compare, so to speak, the operation of insurance companies with the state to see where the advantages lie of this natural uh, natural order. Okay, okay, but I'll tell you, you have to be very convincing here because people hate insurance companies. So this oh, is going to yeah, have to be a really good. Argument. I know, I know, I know. But insurance companies are, of course, now under current uh, situation, uh, among the most heavily regulated industries in uh, in the Western world. So, not everything that insurance companies now do um, would be done if insurance companies would be subject to uh, standard normal. Uh, normal competition and would not be subject to ridiculous rules imposed by governments on them. But uh, t take some example, for instance. Would an insurance company, if they wanted to have a client, would they be able to get away with saying, look, I insure you against damage to your property, but the first thing that you have to do is hand me your weapon. Um, every every normal person would say you must be crazy. What kind of insurance company is that that asked me to just hand hand the, the only tools that I can use for self defense over to the insurance company? But this is what states typically do, right? I mean, states 
in the United States that is not quite as far progressed as it is in most others, but that is an attempt of all states to disarm the public entirely, which seems to be contradicting the purpose of, uh, of providing uh, protection. Then the next, then the next thing, uh, state insurance companies would even give you a discount in the premium that they charge you if you can show them that you are armed, and even more so if you can show them uh, that you know how to handle arms. In the same way as insurance companies give you a, a discount if you have the, uh, a vault at home instead of leaving your jewelry on the kitchen on the kitchen table. It's less likely then that something happens and that they have to uh, have to pay up. Insurance companies would be good at preventing crimes from taking place. Not that they can prevent it in all cases, but they have a financial incentive to be good at it because whatever they prevent, they don't have to pay up. It's like insurance companies indemnify people for damage, whereas states, of course, never indemnify anything, even if it is their fault that something happens to me. They don't say, I'm sorry, and now I will compensate you for my mistake. Insurance companies do this. Um, so whatever they can prevent, they don't have to pay. The state has no such incentive. If it doesn't prevent, it doesn't have to pay. So preventing is, means work. I don't do it. The next thing is what people want is if something has happened, that I get my stuff back, the loot, the stolen goods. Um, insurance companies are good at that too. They have an incentive again. If they, what, what they find, they don't have to replace. They don't have to pay for it. Um, if you have any experience with the local police, the local police doesn't even search after, uh, after stereos and cars and things like that when they are, um, when they are stolen. Um, and again, they have no incentive whatsoever. Their salary is entirely independent of success or not success in this, uh, in this area. And then the worst is, then, then people want the criminals to be apprehended and punished. Um, and an insurance company, again, would have an incentive to find these people because it could then force the criminals to compensate the victims instead of the insurance company have to, have to compensate, um, having to compensate the victims. Whereas the current system is, of course, perverse. Um, so if they catch, if the government police catches these people at all, then they are only successful in capital crime cases in all others. Uh, the rate of discovery is rather low, but if they if they get these people, what happens to them if they are incarcerated? Is the victim then compensated by by the criminal? And the answer is no. As a matter of fact, the victims then have to pay for the incarceration of the criminal, so that he can play table tennis there and eat muesli and uh, study law and uh, uh, walk out, so that he gets stronger once he gets out of prison. Um, and all of that at the expense of uh, of the, the victims. Um, so you so don't see that entirely different, entirely different operation from what we currently see. You don't you don't think there would be private prisons and people making a lot of money off of holding people in cages? I wonder, you know, at the at the bottom line, who's going to protect the rights of the accused? You know what I mean? That's supposedly, and I'm not saying now that the. Uh, that the government's doing a good job of it, but if somebody says, hey, that's the guy who did something to me, 
I still want my Bill of Rights to make sure that I have uh, plenty of opportunity to cross-examine the witnesses against me and everything before they lock me in a cage or make me pay or do anything else. You have, you would have courts in the same way. The, again, the insurance insurance companies, you can you can imagine roughly how they would deal in these in, in these situations. Um, look, you have there are basically three scenarios. You and I are insured with the same company. Um, we both know that we could have a conflict with each other. We both expect from our insurance company that they have some sort of provisions what they will do in case that you and I have a conflict with each other. And then when we do, uh, they follow their own rules. They follow the rules that we have agreed to, and uh, a judgment will be will be passed. Um, the other case is uh, you are insured with one company, I'm insured with another. Again, we both know that cases like this can occur. We both expect our insurance company to have provisions for this case in its contract. Um, if the insurance companies come to the same agreement, uh, that is, you are guilty or I am guilty, then, then the verdict is enforced just like it is just like it is now and then we come to the most interesting case that is um, you are insured with one I'm insured with the other and our insurance companies do come to disagreeing uh, disagreements uh, my, my says I'm I'm right and yours says uh, you are right um, now would they shoot it out in this case the answer seems to be of course they will not shoot it out because shooting it out is extremely expensive insurance companies are by nature defensive Organizations. What would they do instead? They would just resort to independent third-party arbitration. But the emphasis is on independent. It, the arbitrator cannot be anybody who is a member of insurance of your insurance company or a member of my insurance company. You realize that currently, of course, any arbitration is precisely again a member of the same organization to which already the first judge belonged. Um, so this would be very different. The arbitrator would also not know whether he will be chosen again in the future. Um, and he will have an incentive to come up with a verdict that is considered to be by both insurance companies a fair and just verdict and also by implication by the members of both insurance companies as a fair and uh, good verdict because otherwise one or both insurance companies would lose clients and if that were the case, they would no longer choose these types of arbitrators in um, in future in future cases. So I think you would have a very nice um, arbitration procedure set up in some regards similar to what you have, in some regards clearly superior. And we can see that such a thing actually exists already in the world, because if you look at the relationships, let's say, between a German businessman and an American businessman. Um, do you think that the relationship between a German businessman and an American businessman are, in principle, less peaceful or uh, more conflictuous than the relationship between two American businessmen? I doubt that. I, really um, I think they are, by and large, equally peaceful and equally... Uh, conflict loading. But there is no overarching government in both cases. What do they do? 
So the German goes to his German court, the American goes to the American court, um, and then either either the courts agree and enforce that, uh, whatever they agree upon, or they don't agree, then they go to arbitration and then they enforce what the arbitration does. So in on the inter on the international level, well, by definition, so to speak, we live in a state of anarchy because there is no overarching world government. On the international level, we actually do this type of arbitration already, except that it is done by state courts. Um, that, that that I'm proposing can be done internally in each in each society also. Well, what if the two insurance companies agree that I'm responsible, but I disagree? And, you know, there's there's cronyism. You know, a lot of you hear the phrase, it's all about who you know, not what you know, and that kind of thing. And, you know, you can have two guys who are good friends who work at different insurance companies that agree that they're just going to go ahead and find me guilty and transfer this payment yeah. from here but to you there. See, in the, but the question that you have to ask yourself in this case is only could could this not also happen under the current circumstances? Oh, it surely does. I mean, it's it surely does, it's right? And, and the question is only is is it more likely under the current circumstances or less likely? And I think it is more likely under the current circumstances. Again, it is always a mistake so. somehow to believe that that for every problem we can uh, we can develop a perfect solution. Uh, what our goal has has to be is only to deal with this problem of evil, bad people in the most efficient way without without being able to exclude that these things can happen altogether. And I think these competitive insurance companies where people can, if they are dissatisfied, leave one and insure themselves with another, uh, are a better guarantee that these cases that you... Had in mind there that they do not occur than uh, than under the current circumstances. I mean, this is that is a general um, experience that I make when I talk about these things with with people that they realize that there can be still some problems arising under these arrangements. Yes, there can be. Um, are the problems? more likely less frequent and less severe than they are under other circumstances or are they more likely and more severe than under other circumstances that is the only question that that we can address and I think there the answer seems to be always in, in favor of uh, having more competition uh, having people pay voluntarily to insurance companies being able to withdraw from them uh, what do you expect if you must must remain with one firm, as we must know, right? We, there's only one company that that says it will do our protection. Uh, if you must stay with it and you must pay to it, whether you are satisfied or not, do you think that this firm will do more mischief than if you could simply withdraw from the firm? Of course you think they can do more mischief, right? You cannot withdraw from them. Okay, so you've made very compelling arguments against the role of the state as protector of 
the people from foreign enemies and against the state as the arbiter in matters of criminal justice or lawsuits. Those are the two basic, most bottom line functions of the American government. Right. And if you just really completely destroyed them both, in my view, it pretty much seems like. So all that being the case, I have to admit that I'm confused about your take on immigration. I guess I don't mean to oversimplify, but I suppose libertarians basically split into two camps, one which takes the more conservative, close-the-borders uh, point of view, and the other that says, hey, everybody's an individual, and this is a free society, we ought to have completely open borders. And I, I wish uh, I had a better understanding of your reasons for being clo uh, closed borders anarchist. I, I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. Again, I, I think the, the basic idea is, is, again, very simple. Just imagine... We have a society, a natural order in which every every resource is privately owned. So they have private streets, private schools, private private parks, private buildings, private rivers, private lakes. There's nothing that is publicly owned. Everything is privately owned. Um, now, would in such a society would there exist something like a right for people to immigrate? The answer seems to be no, of course not. Because every private property owner has, of course, the right to include or to exclude. I can let you on my property or I can expel you from my property. That is, those are the, the two, the two most important rights that people have with regard to their property, to invite people onto it and to expel them uh, from it. So no, but it's also an, isn't it also a natural property right of a human being to travel wherever he wants in his ownership no. of his self? No, but if somebody just says, I want to travel right through your living room right now, what would you say? Uh, well, through my living room, there's only one door to my place. <laughs> they wouldn't be able to get back out if I had to turn around. But yeah, yeah but you get my, you get my point, point, right? Yeah, sure. um, no, they have, they have no right to trespass. Um, there are many places right now that you cannot go to. Well, but, I mean, wouldn't somebody be a prisoner in the middle of central Texas and not be able to get to Washington State if there's five yeah, normal, billion Normally you would have... Here and there? First of all, there exist, of course, many people who have an interest in providing access to their property. Imagine you are a road owner. A road owner, of course, has an interest in, in having people on the road. Um, uh, imagine you are, have, you are the owner of a shopping center. You have an interest that people come to the shopping center. So there exist both, both tendencies among men. You have, once you want to attract people to come to your things, mostly if you, uh, if you're engaged in commercial things. And on the other hand, you, you also have, uh, desires and tendencies to, to distance yourself from others and to exclude others from your property, which you do more in your, uh, your in, in your uh, residential uh, residential property than uh, commercial property, obviously. Both both things um, are possible. What I'm what I'm only advocating is people must recognize again that the private property impl 
implies also the right to discriminate at will, and I don't have to give any justification for that whatsoever. And we live in a world where we are permanently outlawed from engaging in any type of discrimination. Uh, there is, we cannot say, I will not take you because you are German or because you are not married or because you are homosexual or because this or that or that. Even though a private property owner should have the right to say this, he must, of course, also pay the price that goes with these types of discriminations. Um, but all of these affirmative action and non-discrimination laws, what they have done is forcing people to live together and to accept as employees or as students or as uh, apprentices people that they normally would not want to like to associate with. And this is not a very healthy situation. Um, Although, so you I, know, people would argue that it actually increased the health of the situation quite a bit because before there was, especially in the South and the United States, systematic discrimination against anybody just for having brown skin. And that nowadays people aren't nearly as bigoted as they were because now since they were forced to allow blacks to come and sit at the lunch counter, they realize that this guy's just some guy just like them. Yeah, but you see, at that time the state had laws that uniformly pre prescribed what sort of discrimination people had to engage in. Um this is, of course, not the, the type of discrimination that I have that I have in mind. Each private property owner determines how to discriminate and not to discriminate with respect to his private property. There is nobody who says all private property owners must do that, must discriminate in such and such a way. But this is the purpose, of course, of state laws, right? They cover, so to speak, you and me and my neighbor and your neighbor, and all of us now have to discriminate or miss not discriminate in the in the way that the state tells us to do. This is this is not the type of system that I would advocate. I would advocate a system: you on your territory, you can discriminate in any way you want. I on my territory can discriminate in any way I want. And and this and this will be by and large promoting uh, peaceful peaceful relationships. Because if you force people to be together or force people to be separate from each other who would like to be to, together, in both cases you will create some sort of conflict. Look, we had these cases, the busing cases, where we bust a black kids into predominantly white neighborhoods or vice, or vice versa. Uh, most of the people that I have talked talk to about these problems, whether it's black or white, they all thought that was a lousy program. Uh, it did not promote... Uh, better relationships between these um, between these groups, uh, actually because they felt it was forced upon them and probably created even uh, even more tension. It did not allow that friendships could be built because the people just simply live too far from each other, and you just and you tend to meet and hang out more with people that are in your immediate uh, neighborhood, made, made, making friendships even more difficult. Uh, so I don't think any of these programs um, was uh, was a major success. Um, and the coming, problems, you also say that the problems were really the government's fault in the first place, too. What? It wasn't so much the attitude, or it was the attitude of the people, but it was the state law that 
encoded it and made it all. Yes, 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 yes. Of course, and, and, and this would, of course, not exist in, the, in, in, a, in a natural order the way um, I describe it. You would have plenty of discrimination, but would be very different types of discrimination at very different uh, types of, uh, of places. But the general, the general idea when it comes to immigration come back to this to this subject it has to be we would want to have people to come to the United States that are first invited by someone um, and that is in many many cases of course not the case at all they are not invited by anyone by by any stretch of of the imagination um, and we would want to have people come to a place that by their very presence, so to speak, enhance the value of the village or town or country or whatever it is. We would not want to have um, bums from the third world coming here who lower the value of the property of those who are already here. Uh, and I think the United States in, in recent years uh, has adopted, so to speak, an affirmative action immigration policy where they have increasingly given up the idea of, of looking for people who are assimilable, who want to become American, um, and, uh, and who, whose, and whose presence, um, is good for for the country enhances the value of it. Look, in, yeah, in the old days. Yeah, but what about individualism, though? I mean, what about each and every one of these immigrants is still just an individual and yeah, if must he has be an judged in on an individual basis. If he hasn't, if he hasn't, but you see, like individualism plays no role currently either. You know, well, we but have I mean, you say like for the what's the in the greater interest of America? What's in a better uh, betterment of society and. And I don't see how anyone is supposed to be able to judge that. You know, you you never know. The guy, the illegal immigrant who who comes to pick strawberries, might be the guy who invents the new unified field theory or something someday, or his son might, or who knows what is going to be the betterment of the country. But he has to be invited by someone, and and many of them are not invited. And the other the other idea. Again, look, what, what did countries in the past sometimes do with their, with their criminals? They, they sent them, them to America. They sent them to America. They sent yeah. them away, Australia, to, to uninhabited territories, just to get, get rid of them, because they thought that their own country would, so to speak, suffer if they would, if they would uh, stay there. Um, it seems to be an idiotic policy to... Yet to import uh, to import people of whom you know, of whom you can easily predict that the overwhelming bulk of the population would be opposed to their immigration to the United States because they are people that qualify as people that uh, that are dangerous individuals to be here. Well, let's see. I guess I'm, I'm thinking of a comparison point of view. Uh, Mike Badnark, who's running for president, or running for the Libertarian nomination anyway right now, um, for running for president, he, uh, 
I'm not quoting him. I don't remember exactly how he put it. But I think the analogy was something like a giant wall with a wide open door so that, you know, there's a bouncer checking IDs to make sure that nobody is a convicted felon from whatever country they're from on the way into the country. But other than that, come on in. That give us your poor and your tired and your huddled masses and let them find a, a place to go and uh, build the American dream for themselves and come on in. This is the land of liberty. If there is no welfare. Um, but as you know, of course, there is uh, welfare available. Right, to well, so the problem is our fault for being socialists, not their fault for being tired, huddled masses, yes, right? But, but, but you have to deal, of course, with the question now while the welfare state is in effect. You cannot just say, look, the welfare state is bad. While the welfare state is in effect, we let these people come regardless. Um, and then we hope that the welfare state will eventually break apart, uh, will collapse. But if it collapses, uh, what is then in place? Then you might have such a massive, uh, such a massive inflow of foreigners coming into uh, having come into the United States, that you will get civil wars. Imagine just smaller states. Let's say Switzerland would say, everybody who wants to come to Switzerland and can afford the fare can come to Switzerland and he is entitled to all welfare handouts in Switzerland that the Swiss people are entitled to. What do you think would happen? Oh, it that would be a disaster. It would be a disaster. That would, be, that would take a few weeks, and Switzerland would be overrun by millions and millions of people. Right, but if Switzerland and, said, hey, feel free to come to Switzerland, the, the cost of living here is really high, so you better have a good idea about how to get rich, because we're not going to take care of you, then it wouldn't be millions. It would just be, you know, the people who wanted to go get but, rich in Switzerland. But, but, even, but even then, you think living on the street in Switzerland is is more comfortable than walking 50 or 60 hours in India. Um, to eat out of the garbage cans is more comfortable there. Um, you would be overrun in any case. And, uh, and when the welfare state then collapses, you will have a civil war on your hands. I, I think that is a very unwise policy to just think that you create a catastrophic situation first, and then out of the catastrophic situation, like the like phoenix out of the ashes, a, a satisfying solution will arise. I don't think this is going to happen. Okay, well, if we could repeal the welfare state first, then would you be for a wide open door? Is it is it the fact that the welfare state will bankrupt us and destroy America with the immigration? Yes, then those then, then I would together. be in favor of of, in, of decentralizing the power to determine this question as much as possible. For instance, why should it be the government, the, the federal government, that determines about the immigration policy? Why should it not be a community? In Switzerland, for instance, it is the community where you want to reside that determines whether you will be accepted as a citizen or not. Um, that, sounds, that does not sound like a very unreasonable solution to me. Uh, that's where I want to live, and these people who live there will decide whether they want to have me or don't, because they have already made a major investment in this place, and I benefit as an immigrant from the already existing investment, and these inhabitants might have a justified uh, claim saying that 
the immigrants should just somehow compensate compensate them for all the already existing investments in, at that place. I mean, they have a hospital, they have schools. The immigrant has nothing pro, nothing contributed to this. So in Switzerland, for instance, the people who get permission to immigrate, Switzerland has a large number of foreign workers, but they are not uh, citizens. I think there's a larger number of foreign workers than almost any other country in Europe, 20% or so of the labor force. But it is very difficult to become a citizen. Um, and the citizens typically insist that somebody who wants to become a citizen must be comparatively wealthy, must make a donation to the community to compensate for the fact that the community has accumulated things in the past to which the immigrant did not contribute, but now has to pay his fair share. So in some, in some uh, localities in Switzerland, you have to pay millions of dollars in order to just uh, become a citizen there. I think that seems to be a far wiser strategy to let individual communities determine what their admission standards are. Um, and then you will see for some places the admission standards will be very high, and for some places the admission standards will be very low. Um, but all I'm advocating is only people should be allowed to have their own admission standards and they do not have to be uniform in any way. Now, that's the funny thing about uh, the idea of liberty. It seems that it's so consistent all the way across the board. You can apply the same principle of individual liberty to pretty much every question, and it really turns out that the status solution just doesn't measure up to the free one. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think that's really just the bottom line. Yeah, I think we are almost done with our interview, right? Yeah, I think so. I was just about to say, uh, 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 if you have closing comments or anything you'd like to sum up to get across to people before I let you go. Yeah, I. Uh, what I can sum up is just that this is just, of course, a conversation that is uh, not entirely systematic as it, as it could be, and uh, many questions uh, that have arisen, I probably did not address in full, but if you want to know more about these things, uh, go to my website, Hans Hoppe, H-A-N-S-H-O-P-P-E dot com. Uh, you will find uh, some reviews of my uh, latest two books. You can also order the books from uh, from there, um, various comments on uh, on the books and so forth. And um, uh, you can, uh, if you, if you have something good to say, you can also email me. <laughs> thank you. Great. Hey, I want to thank you very much for coming on, everybody. You've been listening to an interview of Hans Erman Hoppe. He is a professor of economics at UNLV, a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute of Austrian Economics. He's the editor of the Journal of Libertarian Studies. And he's author of a few books, but most importantly, Democracy, The God That Failed, and The Myth of National Defense. Thank you very much for coming on the show today, sir. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Goodbye.